We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are actually together in my office today, not doing this over Zoom. So how are you, Bob? I'm good. We're not separated by hundreds of miles. Yeah, we're right here. I could reach out and touch you. I know. So we're going to start a new book. It's called Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible by Stephen Dempster. So <clears throat> you're in charge of this book. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, is it good. You know, this is a book in a series, just to provide a little bit of background. So the editor is D.A. Carson. Anybody who's familiar with theology would know D.A. Carson. Great scholar, but also a, a great bridge between the world of scholarship and the guy in the pew, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Carson's always been very good at that. And so he's put together this series, the New Studies in Biblical Theology, in Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty, theology of the hebrew bibles one book in that series i don't know what number it is and of course this series progresses yearly so it, it may be up to like 25 volumes or so i probably have half of those at home every one of them's fantastic oh yeah but this one to me stands out above the rest i just love it so i'm so glad you let me pick this one hampton well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Here's here's maybe why I'm particularly fond of this book. As you know, I'm down here for a swim meet. Right. Right. I go to Austin. We're here in Dallas today, but I go to Austin tomorrow for a, a national level meet. Um, so that's always been part of my personality is coaching. And I've always felt like coaching people in the faith this book is a phenomenal tool to do that so okay we're gonna coach people <laughs> through how, how to read the scripture that's what we're going to be doing learning how to read the bible and that sounds so fundamentally almost silly it's fantastic so you know, let me go back to another swimming analogy okay when I've had the opportunity to take someone from step one in swimming, um, you know, outside of a club, 
right? It's not like I'm teaching them as they come into a group, but I'm just with them individually okay. as young kids. The very first thing I do with them is work on balance. So, for instance, can you float in the water? Mm -hmm. That's how I begin teaching people how to swim and uh, float correctly. Most humans float, right? Some of them are so dense. We had one, I don't mean dense mentally, but, you know, their (laughs) body type. They're just so musculature, yeah, so muscled up. They kind of do sink, but um, with kids, when they're born, I mean, one of the things they're learning early on, one of the things, right, their language skills, or you can almost see smoke coming out of their ears. There's so much learning going on in those first few months and years. You know, if you ever see studies on how many neurons are being connected a day, it's just (laughs) staggering. Right. And right. so one one of the things they're learning is uh, balance. You know, pretty soon they can crawl and then eventually they can walk and so on. They just start doing it. But they worked on that actually for a while. Right. So when people get in the water, they don't necessarily think about that. Like, how do I balance in the water? So my, my right. point is when I've been able to work with children, you know, from the very get-go. That's what we work on first. Right. So theologically, imagine having a person theologically from square one. Okay. I would make them read. That's how we do it. And I would just teach them how to read. <clears throat> so one other aspect of swimming applies to this as well. Sometimes during the, the course of the years, you know, any local program their numbers will really swell in summers where the Olympics happen. So every four years, your right. <laughs> team gets this big influx right. of swimmers because they saw it on TV. Oh, look at... I want to do that. Yeah, look, look at Michael Phelps. He got all those gold medals and he's... Okay. So, you know, I'm sort of making fun of this, but this is generally how it works, right? So they hop in. Okay, what are we going to do? Oh, swim down to that end as fast as you can and turn around and swim back here as fast as you can. (laughs) And so, you know, they do it, and then when they touch you up, okay, do it again. Okay, do it again. (laughs) That's what we're going to do, right? Right. Is swim really hard for a long time. That's how you get good at swimming. I remember, you know I'm not a movie guy, but since you're rabbit trailing me, (laughs) I had one one instance, I've mentioned this on a very early podcast that I... I just started crying at this one movie, but that was actually the second time I started crying at a movie. And the first time, I remember uh, we, as in my family, were in North Carolina. We were with some friends, and it was um, Karate Kid, but it was a remake of that. I never saw the original Karate Kid, so I have nothing to compare it to in my mind, but I think it was Will Smith's son. Right. I remember was a young guy. So they're in... Japan or some Asian country. Right. He doesn't fit in and he's starting to get bullied at school. And so he wants to learn, you know, martial arts to defend himself. And the, the uh, like maintenance guy at the property. Right. Right. The mom talks him into mm-hmm. working with her son. Yeah. And he's a little reluctant, but okay, here we go. So they meet in a courtyard and the kid has like on a, a hoodie. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, the kid's excited. I'm going to learn martial arts. Right. 
The older maintenance guy says, okay, take your jacket off. He takes the jacket off. He says, throw it down. <laughs> he throws it down. He says, pick it up. He picks it up. Then he says, put it on. <laughs> and he puts it on, and then he says, take it off. And you see the wheels. Something connects in the kid's mind. Like, right. this is what I'm going to be doing. Right. And I just started crying. Like, yes, that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> that's how you do it, right? right. It's, so anyway, the real trick to growing theologically is reading. Yeah. So that's what we're going to, he's going to walk us through that. He's going to walk us through that like a scholar would. I'm going to walk us through it like a coach would. Okay. But we'll use his material. So, any questions so far, Hampton? No. How about if we start reading? Okay. Take <laughs> one. <laughs> Take one. Also, let me piggyback off that. Have you ever been asked by a, a new Christian or someone who was discipling a new Christian, like, where should they start reading in the scriptures? Yeah. What do you say usually? Well, a popular thing to say is John. <laughs> that is popular. That's the most popular one I've right, heard. Right. And then there's ways but in which But it's always good to makes... start at the beginning. That's exactly right. And there's ways in which John almost does that, right? Mm-hmm. How does John start out? In the beginning. Right. But he's assuming you know yeah. that he's echoing the very first words. But I always tell people, well, why would you? It's a book. Why would you start anywhere other than page one? So that's what we're going to start. Chapter one, which is actually page 15 okay. in, a, in a book like this, right? Because they have preliminary material. But his opening question in this chapter, we got to set the table for a while. It's almost like the karate kid taking off his jacket or the young swimmer that's just going to learn how to float instead of swim. This book starts out, in, in a book that's about reading the Old Testament, it starts out with this question. Is, you know, what we refer to as the Old Testament, is that really just a collection of what we might call books? Or is it one book in essence? That's the question he's going to raise. Because scholars are going to question that. Right. Right. The guy in the pew, probably not. Right. They're going to have some sort of broad general view uh, that this is the Bible. But remember, this wasn't given all at once. No. Bunch of different scrolls. Different scrolls. And often that limits the size of a scroll can limit... A, a book, for instance, why are all the Gospels about the same length? <laughs> because that's the size of a scroll. Oh, yeah. Right? And and why Luke is Luke and then Acts, right? Two scrolls. And they're not exactly one-to-one in size, but there's a general size limit to a scroll. So you, you'll notice a lot of biblical books fit that. Now, Paul's letters don't. Right. But the books of the... Pentateuch, right, would be... So when we say Pentateuch, 
first five books of the Bible written by Moses would be roughly similar in size. And so on. So anyway, he's raising the question, is it one book or um, just a collection of books? And like I said, scholars will debate that. His point of view, you can already tell, is going to be that in essence, when you analyze everything, in the end, it's one book. So that's important to keep in mind. I'm not going to read that whole chapter. The next thing he's going to do um, in this chapter is talk about a lens. Like as I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, we literally are looking through lenses. Because you wear glasses and I wear right. glasses. This is where he talks about modernism and postmodernism. It is. Though I don't want to delve into that so much, but I do want to talk about lenses. And maybe it's helpful to pose another question first before we dive into that. So this is a big picture item that's really helpful to have in your mind. So the first, to personalize it, the first class I ever took in graduate school was hermeneutics. I didn't take it at Dallas. Oh, yeah? I, I took it um, remotely from Western Seminary. This the one with Earl Rodmacher? With Earl Rodmacher. And to a German speaker, what's his name mean? Well, I don't know. Doesn't Rod mean wheel? Like he's the wheel maker? Yeah, Link, link Rod is the <laughs> steering wheel. Okay. Yeah, he's a wheel maker. Okay. Rodmacher. But what a... Uh, what a character to have teach your first class. Um, so anyway, I, t- I took it from Western. Okay. And it was so helpful. And this is the first thing we learned. That God has designed a process to get his thoughts into your thoughts and actions. And that process has seven steps. Okay. So step number one. For God to get his thoughts into your thoughts and actions is revelation. God has to speak. You can't read his mind. Okay. And Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I can't read your mind. You can't read mine. I mean, you can pick up on body language and stuff, but you, you can't read someone's mind. So we can't read God's mind. Right. Of course, there's people that think they can do that. <laughs> It turns out, you know, he's always on their side and so on. But you can't, okay? So he has to speak. Well, whoever he's speaking to has to get it, and we call that inspiration. So step number one is revelation. God has to speak. Step number two is inspiration. The human author has to get it. So picture Moses. Right. God speaks. Moses gets it. But it's not dictation. God isn't saying, hey, go get your stylus and some papyri, and uh, here we go. In the beginning, you got that? That's not how it went down. But there is revelation and inspiration. Step three, once uh, Moses gets it and has it recorded, it's got to be transmitted. Okay. So transmission, and that gets into an area that you're... You're know, very familiar with, right? The manuscript history right. and stuff. <clears throat> so it's got to be passed on. It's got to be copied and passed on. Step four, most of us 
don't speak or read Hebrew or Greek. So it's got to be translated. So step one, revelation. Step two, inspiration. Step three, transmission. Step four, translation. To almost everyone alive today, those have been done. You, You don't really have to do anything personally to get involved yet. Right. That's all been done for you. Step five is where you come into play. That's interpretation. Okay. So revelation, inspiration, transmission, translation, interpretation. And as you interpret, the Holy Spirit will illuminate to you. Okay. So that's number six, illumination. Then number seven, application. If you don't do number seven, the other six don't matter. Right. Right. I mean, man. I think James said something about that. <laughs> well, I always thought about it. You know, one of my chores growing up, you know, now that I think about it, Hampton, this chore has never changed. It's still, I still have this chore today. Okay. But you got to take the trash out. That's right. All right. So if my dad says, you know, hey, it's whatever day of the week, you know, you got to take the trash out. I said, okay, well. I think uh, your dad, and so you were speaking, you were speaking to me, and the trash was the subject. Or I'm the subject, and the trash is the direct object. Okay. It needs to go down to the end of the driveway, and I understand that that was the imperative mood, right? You commanded me to do that, and yeah, I got it. But if I never go take that out, then he would say, you didn't get it. Right. Or you would have done it. So the final step that we're after is, simply put, obedience, right? Mm -hmm. Without that, this whole stuff is wasted. But that's the picture I'd like everybody to have in their mind. And what we're trying to do is step in at step number five, interpretation. And so we're setting the table in order to do that by reading... Dempster and Dempster is raising the question that everybody reads metaphorically with a pair of glasses. So his next point is going to be so how do you get the right glass? How how do you get your prescription correct? Okay. Cuz that can really lead you astray and he he goes through five or six different illustrations of types of lenses that do lead you astray right like he mentions a guy that thought it's almost like a tv show ancient aliens or something he literally thought right i remember that one right it's kind of funny to read but he was interpreting the bible as if it was written by ancient aliens well that pair of glasses is gonna lead you astray right so how do you get your prescription right so here's here's where I want to pick up Dempster and read some of his material. Uh, I just want people to keep in mind. So Dempster's a scholar, and so they when they're writing, it, it's hard for them to break out of you know what they're reading all day long. So they have a certain vocabulary, mm-hmm. and they have certain assumptions that you know what they're talking about when they use certain words that we really may not. So I'll pause at certain times and explain those things. 
Um, it's almost like, you know, when I was on the board at uh, the Vail Hospital reading those medical studies, one of my responsibilities as a layperson was to read the study and direct the doctor. You know, you can't say it that way because nobody's going to understand. The guy's it. not doesn't know what you're going to do. He doesn't know what he's signing up when you say, you know, the femoral, dorsal, medial, collateral. He doesn't know what that is. So say say the front of your knee, the back of your <laughs> knee, whatever it is. Right. Right. Use words I'm going to use. But that that happens in every profession. So. Anyway, we're going to pick up Dempster here. He says, Consequently, the function of a particular text should inform interpreters, so much so that they begin to use the lens the text itself provides. So how do you get your prescription right? You let the Bible itself be your prescription. That's what he's saying. Okay. If the Bible is approached as a political tract, a textbook of knowledge, a dictionary of ethics, a secret code, or a cipher for understanding UFOs, then surely its meaning will be distorted. Interpreters are using inappropriate tools. So here's another theologian that's remarked on this, and he has a great illustration. This is Sites, and he says, No matter how much the golfer with a sand wedge or cleated shoes wants to play squash, the squash court expects something else. Rubber-soled shoes, a squash racket, and a player who's come to play squash. So you can't act like you're... Hampton, don't go to the squash court tomorrow when you get up. Right. With your clubs. You gotta go to the golf golf course. There's gonna be great applications from this in a second, but <clears throat> so or to shift the metaphor once again, a lens appropriate for seeing the text must be used. So you gotta get your prescription right. How is such a lens acquired? One of the ways is through constant exposure to the text reading and rereading so that's that scene from karate kid right mm -hmm. that how are you going to become a good bible reader how are you going to step in to step number five and complete the process of god getting his thoughts into your thoughts and actions you're going to do it by doing it right. all day long all the time right yeah i understand people have jobs and stuff like that but I mean, you really have to be diligent about it. It's reading and rereading. And he says the same thing in a further paragraph. It's by steeping ourselves in its tone or temper that readers learn its overall message. Reading and rereading. By engaging in this activity, we become familiar with the contours of the text, its poetic detail, its texture, its word plays and distinctive logic, its overall shape and design. So <clears throat> we'll get back to Dempster in a second, but I want to make a another point. So I was so fortunate, Hampton. When I came to faith, I was uh, 21 years old. I had not been raised in a Christian family, though my I had a good family. Mm -hmm. 
but not a Christian family. So when I came to faith, I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't know anything about the Bible other than whatever you might pick up from a cult from our culture. Right. But beyond that, I had no familiarity with it. So when I did come to faith, the first thing I did was I had been given a Bible, so I opened it to page one and started reading. And then, you know, a year, was it a year, maybe a year and a half later? um, No, I think I worked for a year. So maybe two, two years later, then I went to school. But, you know, Dallas, the school we went to, is not a particular uh, denomination. I mean, it's the Bible churches came out of Dallas. Right. But I wouldn't call Dallas Seminary a denomination. No. I mean, mostly you were just dealing with the text. So I never learned the Bible through a church or a denomination. I learned the Bible from the Bible. Right. And I've always felt so fortunate about that. So certain things that that um, will be almost fly-by-night fads in the Christian faith, they always kind of just bounced off me. Not not because um, I didn't appreciate a certain thrust that was being made, but it just didn't sound like the Bible to me. Like, do you remember people saying, maybe they still do, but uh, they're so happy, you know, that God meets them where they're at. Right. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that just going mm, not so sure about it. I mean I, I understand what you're saying and I, I don't there's parts of that that I agree with but if where you're at is repentance yeah he'll meet you there <laughs> all day long right. but yeah. if you're stuck in some foul sin he isn't going to meet you there yeah good point you know, it just seemed like... But I understand what they mean, though. On the one hand, Jesus met us when he took on human flesh and, you know, stepped down into a fallen world. So I, I understand that. He certainly met us in that sense. But <clears throat> I wouldn't say he met the Pharisees where they were. Yeah, he expected <laughs> them to come to him. Right. <laughs> right. And... On his terms. Right. And that's going to come up in, in this chapter in, in a little bit. And that, that's an important thing. I almost, I almost want to jump there. But I'm going to keep following him. We'll, we'll get to it in a second. Okay. But, but you, you understand my point. I just learned the Bible from the Bible. And that's how I want everybody to learn it. Um, you know, there's a preaching application of that, too. Sometimes... One of my jobs over the years, you know, was to work with certain preachers and, hey, let's make sure we have the text down. And there were times when they would give such a good illustration that what was remembered after the message was the The illustration. illustration. It wasn't the text. Right. You know, it was, yeah, you took your kids bowling and and it was awkward. You know, the kid made a big scene. They don't even remember the point. Yeah, everybody laughed when you told that, but you didn't yeah. remember our original, right? Here, here's the goal, God to get his thoughts into your thoughts and actions. That illustration didn't facilitate any of that. Right. So here's another question that Dempster raises. 
well, we, we looked at it. Is the Old Testament a text or a group of texts? So let me give a big picture thing from him. I'm going to read this, these two paragraphs. It's good. We'll explain one of these words in a little bit. There is no question, Dempster says, that the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, right, right now we'll just leave that as a... Tanakh? Tanakh, okay. a word for the Hebrew Bible. We'll explain it later. <clears throat> as it has come down to believing communities was viewed as a unity. God's people always viewed it as a unity. The diverse literary collection was viewed as a whole for theological reasons. While having many authors, it was also believed to have one. Let's pause there for a second. So remember, um, was it true when we were in Truman, maybe? We had talked about um, the rights in our culture are God-given in America. Well, if you remove God, then there are no rights. Then you you have no rights, and so in critical scholarship, if you remove God, then there isn't unity to the biblical books, and that's where they are. A lot of critical right. scholars are, and, but that's why they've removed God, so they don't see they don't the see unity. the one author. They don't see the one author, but if you do see the one author, then you see the unity. Right. So those things go okay. hand in hand. So. But the question remains, is this a unity in a literary sense, or is it artificially imposed? Is the result simply a hodgepodge of religious traditions at worst, or an anthology of ancient literature at best? And then he almost sounds like Stark with his next little sentence. The facts indicate conceptually. I used to love that when Stark would say that. The facts are otherwise. Right. The facts indicate conceptual unity. This will be dealt with more extensively later. But it needs to be stated that despite the literary heterogeneity, there is at the same time a remarkable structural homogeneity. For this vast variety of genres is set within books which are placed within an extraordinary narrative outline, commencing with the creation and ending with the exile and return of the Jewish people. The storyline begins with creation and moves to the exile of Judah and Babylon from Genesis to 2 Kings. Then the narratives interrupted by poetic texts, largely prophecy, psalms, and wisdom literature, before being resumed with Israel back in Babylon in the book of Daniel, moving on to the return of the exiles to Judah and concluding with a narrative summation of the entire history of Israel from creation the exile in the books of Chronicles. This amazing diversity of texts is set within a comprehensive narrative framework which provides an overarching literary and historical context. Thus the many shorter texts together contribute to this larger textual framework 
and find their meaning and significance within it. So before we get to some of his really good examples, maybe back to some analogies. For instance, again, if I'm teaching a kid how to swim, they automatically recognize the context of that pool. They've been in a locker room, then they walk out on the deck, then they're in a certain lane, usually close to the wall, mm-hmm. right? Lane one or lane eight, you know, however many lanes your pool is. So they can reach out and grab the wall if necessary. Or so you can explain, you know, if I'm having to yell across the pool, they're not going to get it. If I'm five feet from them explaining it to them, they get it better. But they understand all of that context. So our goal is to become better readers. And what we're doing in this first chapter is just we're putting our swimsuits on. (laughs) We're in the locker room. We're walking out on the deck. Pretty soon we'll get in the water and start floating. Okay. Right. But we're just setting all that stage. And then back to the, you know, he mentioned the diversity and the unity. His his words for that were like heterogeneity, right? That's the diversity. That's how a theologian talks. Okay. And then homogeneity, that's the unity. So downstairs in your house is a fantastic painting, (laughs) right? I've been looking at that thing for like the last two hours. It's just a beautiful scene, like a mountain scene, a a river in in a forest, maybe mountainous, but, and there's a bear and it's the fall. Yeah. Probably late afternoon, the angles of the light are such that the sun's not up above them. It's from the side. So anyway, every detail in that picture is really cool. Like the river rocks. But if I took one of those river rocks out of that picture and just looked at it alone, it was kind of boring. Right. But inside that picture, it's fantastic. So the individual books of the Bible uh, are great but they take on an even greater significance within the context of the whole Bible. Right. I think of the book of Ruth, for example. Good story. Yeah. But then, I, I could stand on its own. It could stand stands on its own, but then, you know, being the, what, the grandmother of David, uh-huh. you know, it fits into the, the bigger story. <clears throat> and it has a genealogy in it. And genealogy is going to be key to right. one of the things Dempster's saying. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So here's some of his examples. He's going to mention Ruth here pretty soon. See, right there at the bottom oh. of that page, the book of Ruth. But the first example, he says, for example, the individual hero stories in the book of Judges have their individual local meaning as examples of God's salvation for each of the various tribes at particular times. But they are now positioned within a larger national story, the whole book of Judges, which itself is part of a larger story, what he calls the former prophets, which in turn is part of a universal story, Genesis to Chronicles. The larger literary context of the Tanakh, and again, that's the Old Testament, has significant hermeneutical implications. So hermeneutical, just substitute the word 
interpretation. Okay. So the larger literary context of the Tanakh has significant hermeneutical implications. For example, it begins with Genesis rather than with Exodus. Pause there before I finish that sentence. So? (laughs) But think about that. Exodus is, you know, one way to summarize that book. That's the birth of Israel. But that's chapter 2. That's not chapter 1. So in other words, Israel... How do we get Israel? Right. Israel itself is part of a bigger story. Right? A much bigger story. We had a guy some years ago. Did you ever notice how... um, Please don't take this wrong. I know you won't, but (laughs) Jewish comedians are funnier than other comedians. (laughs) I mean, that sounds almost terrible to say, but some of those guys, if they even walk out there, I start laughing, right? Before they even say something. Oh, man, I remember this guy saying once, uh, he goes, yeah, my baby's complaining about his mother-in-law, you know? Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah, she bought me two ties for Christmas. You know, said, we'll go try one on. So I went upstairs and put one on. I come down and she goes, what's the matter? You don't like the other one? I mean, it's just, <laughs> you just start laughing, you know, at their culture. And I remember this one guy, he wasn't a comedian per se, but he always had a good joke and he was Jewish. And I, I you could tell when he was starting to get into a joke, I'd just start laughing. And I remember one of them, he was saying, you know, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> But there's some wisdom there. Yeah. Is Israel not a picture of all humanity? I mean, as you read their story, don't you like shake your head, you know, oh man, I can't believe you guys did this again. Right, right. Yeah, well. So do we. Yeah, then go look in the mirror. (laughs) Yeah. Right, you're seeing yourself in in Israel's Mm -hmm. history. So, um the Exodus is chapter 2, right. not chapter 1. That's the point he's making. So then he goes on to say, signifying that Israel's national history is subordinated to that of world history. By the way, before we get to another word that we've already explained, but um, do you know what you call a singing computer? A singing computer? Yeah. I don't. Adele. <laughs> okay, so his, okay. his next sentence, and he says, hermeneutically, and again, remember that means interpretation. This means that the birth of Israel as a nation and its raison d'etre, right? Its reason for being are set within God's larger purposes for the world and for creation. To begin with Genesis rather than with the Psalms, provides a historical context by which Israel's praise can be understood. To begin with the Adam and Chronicles rather than with the Adam and Genesis would omit important background information necessary to understanding the place of David in the former book. The monotonous refrain at the end of Judges that there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes 
supplies the appropriate context for interpreting the rise of kingship in the subsequent book of Samuel. Although the book of Ruth there you go. can be understood as a romantic short story emphasizing the law of kindness which transcends national boundaries and makes all men kin, its genealogical conclusion anchors it firmly into the overarching historical and literary context of the Bible. And its position before the Psalms reinforces its function. Moreover, the poetic literature, which breaks the main line of narrative from Genesis through Kings, provides significant theological commentary before the narrative is resumed again in the book of Daniel. Is that the way you, you read the Psalms? I hadn't really thought about it that way. I know. And that's important to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't change the meaning. Like back to our picture, it doesn't change the, the beauty of that river rock. It puts that river rock in a bigger context that right. makes it even more beautiful. So the Psalms read as commentary on you know, the history of Israel up to that's, that's pretty interesting. Right. I mean, I think we, we, when we study a Psalm, we'll say this is uh, something David yeah, wrote. Background to it. Yeah, this is something David wrote mm -hmm. after he'd had the sin with Bathsheba mm -hmm. or something like that. And so that's the historical context of it. Right. Specifically, but the theological context of it, you know, embedded within that historicity, really important. Okay, so uh, to read some of this commentary, such as the prophets, they're also very much like that. In isolation from the larger text is inevitably to distort its message as one of doom and gloom or to typecast the prophets as preachers of repentance. To read them in their literary context is to see that they reflect on the past the experience of the exile is judgment. The cutting down of the tree to a stump while looking forward to the future and its possibilities. The shoot that springs up from the stump. So then his next section is the importance of the literary approach to the text. We were just talking about this, right? At school, when I was there, I didn't feel like I got great training in narrative. I feel like if you showed me something from Paul, yeah, I could tell you a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Gospels are narrative, and of course we read those, but not, not through a narrative lens so much, more through theological lens. And a lot of the Old Testament is narrative. Right. And I remember that being one of the motives for going back to school was I didn't feel trained enough in narrative literature <coughs> but excuse me so the importance of the literary approach to the text the act of reading and hearing was important for the bible's first audiences consequently it's imperative that its audiences today pay attention to the act of reading and rereading its texts 
so that by steeping themselves in its tone or temper, and so learning its overall message, they come to understand the text. You know, I would say, Hampton, my experience is so limited, but I don't think we actually read the Bible enough in, in church, just reading it. Yeah. And you know how that's kind of my habit when we're doing the podcast. I want to read a chapter at a time or big chunks. Right. Right. I, I just think that's important just to read it mm-hmm. alone. Um, you know, back to our swimming analogy, if you get to the point, you know, past floating where the kid's actually propelling themselves forward, right? Knows how to kick and balance and do the different pulls for the different strokes. How helpful is it for them to just swim? Right. right? How much does that improve their swimming? Yes. A huge amount. So if our goal is to be great readers of the text, how much does just reading yeah, read it. accomplish that? Well, he make. You may be about to read it. We have been so eager to interpret the Bible that we have sometimes forgotten to read it. Correct. And doesn't, uh, you know, I had this experience. It was so, just one of my greatest joys, Hampton. You know, I just have one, one child, but I've always just felt so close to her. And, and my job was such, you know, through her, developmental years you know up until she went to college we were together a lot you know parents aren't always afforded that um that gift mm-hmm. man that was a gift we we were together a lot i mean a couple of years we homeschooled and that was mostly me and then even when it wasn't you know i'm driving her to school i'm picking her up from school we don't really have a i guess we do have a bus system yeah. In, in the valley but, not, but you didn't need one you were only a couple miles away yeah <laughs> so you had that and it, we we were just together a lot and it was so so fun so anyway <clears throat> so one of the things i started doing with her when she was in the womb yeah did you play music i read <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. the psalms to her oh really in the womb so when she <laughs> popped out as soon as I could get her to sit down and sit on my lap, I'd put a book in front of her, and we would read it together. Hmm. So one day, she was very young, and I was uh, incapacitated, Hampton, in the restroom. And she's knocking on the door. You know, she has a book in her hand. You know, Dad, read me the book. And it was like a version, a kid's version of the book of Daniel. Okay. And you know, I said... Sophia, I can, you know, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, I had to crack the door open to talk to you. know, I'm kind of busy here. And uh, I said, why, why don't you read it? And she couldn't read yet. But we'd read that book so many times. I didn't have to, right? She knew it. So she, she knew that. She saw the picture on one side. And he told and, the story. And knew the words. Yeah. And so she's you know, quote, reading it. And I said, well, give me that for... And it's word for word. Oh, really? (laughs) It it goes in. Yeah. Let me make a sub-point. God designed a perfect process. The human brain is meant for reading. That's how he designed it, to get it to you. 
Mm-hmm. Right, so she she had that memorized without trying to memorize it. We'd just done it so often, right? And so then a couple weeks later, this was so fascinating. <clears throat> same situation, same restroom, <laughs> same time of day. Just a little knock on the door, you know. Dad, read me the book. Sophia, you know, give me a few minutes here. And then she goes, well, "It's okay, I'll read it." And so she starts same thing, starts reading, and it's not word for word this was the most fascinating thing to me so give, give me that book because you know i could sort of tell it was a little off because i'm almost memorizing it right. myself right yeah. so i'm i'm looking at it and she's adding words and these were the kinds of words she was adding this was so fascinating she would say because you know such and such such and such because and then back to the, there's no because in there. But there was logically. But logically there sure is. Yeah. You know, her supplying those, you're going, that's exactly how he wants you to read that. Exactly. So it was so fascinating. Sort of like recognizing the structure in a Pauline epistle. A little bit like that. Yeah. And, and I remember, here's a funny story about that. So... So when Kathy and I got married, she was like making some business proposal or something, you know, had to write up a business plan and submit it to some bank or something. She said, Bob, you know, how should I word, you know, this? And I said, well, what are you trying to say? And she told me, which is often, you know, conversationally, it's pretty easy to just talk. But when you're writing, people get mm-hmm. stuck sometimes. Yeah, right. You just put down what you said. It sounded pretty good. <laughs> but anyway, she's, you know, how should I say this? And I said, well, for that, you need a participle. And she goes, what? <laughs> and, it, you know, I I wasn't, I was just in my own mind, right, from being in school forever, right. looking at Paul uses participles all the time, and that's how that registered to me. So the text will form your lenses for mm-hmm. you if you let it do its job. So anyway, a little later on, he says, while it is true that the Bible was never received as sacred scripture because of its literary merit, ignorance of its literary features impedes understanding. So the people of God didn't say, you know, that's a really good quality writing, so let's make it scripture. That's not what they were thinking. What they were thinking is they heard the voice of God Right, and Mm -hmm. thus included it as scripture. Now, it turns out the Bible is remarkable in its literary features. Very, I mean, all Western literature is built on that. So, at some point, we'll get around to those, but you'll just pick them up naturally if, if you read them, if you just read the text. So, on the other page right across from this one he makes this statement i know i'm not giving us the full context of some of these but it's just because i want to pick up some of the points he's making he describes the biblical story this way he says it's a redemptive story that aims at the restoration of a lost destiny for the human race and creation is that a good way to summarize the message of the bible yeah. A redemptive story 
that aims at the restoration of a lost destiny for the human race and creation. Okay, I've got to br- you know I'm not a movie guy, but I'm going to bring up another movie. Okay. So when Sophia was, I don't know, 17, I'm just guessing. It was somewhere around there. We went to a movie. With uh, so Kathy, Sophia, and I, and we went to see Beauty and the Beast. They'd okay. like write the Disney movie. They mm-hmm. it was a play, I think, originally. Maybe originally it was a story, and then they made it into a movie. Might be a, an ice skating show or something. But anyway, I'd never read the read the story. But we sit down and we watch the movies. Great, very entertaining, and we're driving home. And I said. Um, you know, to both Kathy and Sophia, what was the opening scene of the Beauty and the Beast? I said, oh, it was a, like a party. You know, the guy, the young prince is coming into his own and so on. There's a big ball everybody had on there, nice dresses and so on. I said, yeah, that's right. What was the last scene of that movie? Oh, it was a party. The, the guy had... Like, he wasn't the beast anymore. He got healed, and he was coming into his own. I said, does that sort of sound like the Bible to you? Chapters 1 and 2, here's God in the garden with the king, Adam and Eve, king and queen of the creation. Then at the end, the new Jerusalem comes down, and it's this. So that's just a biblical story. That's why Beauty and the Beast was good. It's the same. Interesting. But it, but it is interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what Dempster's going to do for us as we keep moving forward. He'll make those kind of macro observations, right, that put everything else in its right place. And it'll open the scriptures for us. That's why I'm excited about doing that Dempster. So just a few more. Can you bear with me a little while longer? How sure. Are we, how are we doing? We're okay? Yeah, we're good. Okay. So I'm going to skip some things and read a comment from a guy. We're still on introductory matters. Don't worry. We're going to get to the text eventually. We're going to get past floating. Okay. We're going to get to real swimming. But here's a, a guy, this is Auerbach. You know, there were a lot of great German theologians, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. here, here's Auerbach, a pioneering literary critic. And so he brought that background to the Bible and then read the Bible and then made this statement about it. The Bible's claim to truth is not only far more urgent than Homer's, it's tyrannical. It excludes all other claims. The world of the scripture stories is not satisfied with claiming to be a historically true reality. It insists it's the only real world is destined for autocracy. Is that true? Yeah. It's absolutely true. Certainly. The scripture stories do not, like Homer's, court our favor. They do not flatter us so that they may please and enchant us. They seek to subject us. And if we refuse, 
were rebels. That's very good. It's really good. That's a guy who's coming at it, you know, hugely loaded with literary skills and reads the Bible and goes, this is unlike other stuff. This this isn't trying to woo you. It's saying, We're not just the best truth. Yeah, we are the only truth. <laughs> yeah. You know, one, one application from that, I've used this illustration with people often, but for many, Christianity is one choice mm-hmm. amongst who knows a dozen other just one of the one of the ways to, one of the ways one of the one of the religious books mm-hmm. and I've just you know whenever I hear that I just start shaking my head and I said let me paint a picture for you like your brother the artist okay. right and I said for instance if Jesus Muhammad Confucius whoever else you want to put in that group meet together in a room and they close the door behind them and you open up that door 10 seconds later every one of those other people are bowing down to jesus and he's standing there that they are not equals right right that's a good illustration there's one god yeah And, and by definition there could only be right you can't have two omnipotent people Right? That's true. <laughs> so I, I love the way he said it. It's its claim to truth is so urgent. It's tyrannical. You know, another application of that I've always thought in my mind, you know, in, in my fallen humanity, man, I wish God would just, you know, let's have a little miracle showdown. From time to time he does that, right, with Elijah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's rare. Right. And for an omnipotent guy to be reserved in that respect is you got to think that through. Um, and maybe the only way I can even approach explaining that is if I had to prove to my daughter that I was her dad, that would really bother me. I, I never felt like I had to do that. Right, I just yeah. I just am your dad. Here's I want you to act, and you know I'm not. I don't feel like I have to explain that much about that. You just do what I'm telling you. I love you. I'll right, right. give my life for you. I'll do anything, but don't question who I am. And I, I think you have that in the scriptures. For God, this there's almost a sense in which that Elijah miracle you know that I, I think he was I don't think he was happy he had to do that I don't think he enjoyed doing that right that's a good point it's almost insulting to him to have to you know prove himself <laughs> oh my gosh so anyway one of his last illustrations he has this section called not losing sight of the forest and uh that's just another way he's just hammering home. can't see the forest for the trees it's a perfect that's a good metaphor or, or yeah, almost like yeah. a proverb yeah. Sort of, yeah. you know but it's true uh, so you you lose the message of the text sometimes when you focus so minutely though jesus can make you know he's always my reference for this is a good thing to toss in at, at this point you know how should we handle uh, the text 
as readers. Well, the same way Jesus did. And there are times when, when he got almost technical on certain things, right? So when he says, for instance, um, what's the plural he uses? the Oh, well, a different case. When he says to uh, the Sadducees that don't think there's a resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. What did God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham. Right. And you're, you're going, oh, well, how, what? <laughs> okay, how's that proof? Well, Abraham's been dead. 400 years mm -hmm. and he used the present tense not i was his god i am his god right because he still exists so so there are technical things like that yeah but mostly he's going for the big points so so that's my reference you know how should we handle the text same way jesus did he certainly thought it was inspired down to the smallest it wasn't it him that said, you know, the smallest jot or tittle will not mm -hmm. be removed from this till it all comes to pass. So anyway, Dempster's making the point to don't lose the forest for the trees. Then he goes into his Mount Rushmore illustration, which our illustration is better of your brother's painting <laughs> downstairs. There you go. But he used the same kind of thing. Then he talks about... You know, this is kind of interesting. I don't want this to slow us down much uh, other than to mention in, in critical scholarship, there's often the position that uh, the text we have was put together by so many different editors. Like, for instance, Genesis 1 is different than Genesis 2, though they're both talking about creation. See, there's two authors here because it's in your school. <laughs> no. I, there were some bad German scholars, too. <laughs> Great scholars, but no wisdom in what they were saying, right? High IQ, but no wisdom. Um, yeah, I said, you know, I might tell you about how Kathy and I went to look at the Redwood Forest, you know, a couple years ago. And if I told you that again a couple months later, I doubt if it's going to be word for word, you know, and I might have a different point I'm making. Right. So that doesn't mean I'm two different guys. Yeah. And so he, he in that context, he talks about if you look at some of these minute details, like the names for God and so on, it, those are important to observe those details, how they might differ from chapter one to chapter two, but not conclude that it's a whole different author or that there's not unity and so he uses chiasm to point that out if you look at the minutiae so much you miss the macro chiasm which is a very common way that those guys write very common oh yeah very common. boy there's a great book on that you know chiasm in the scriptures and once you see it laid out that way you're almost embarrassed you know, how did I miss that? How did I miss it? So obvious once someone points it out, right? So don't lose the forest for the trees. Before he ends that section, Dempster says, it is the thesis of this book. When you make a statement like that, that should be underlined. I did highlight it. See, you're a good reader. <laughs> It is the thesis of this book that when the Hebrew Bible is read and reread, the faces of the biblical Rushmore, the purposeful pattern, will be seen clearly rather than the textual patchwork in the face of the mountain. 
So if you keep reading and rereading. Now, how many times has he said that already? What, yeah. But it's starting to sink in, I'll bet. It sunk in to me. I'll bet you it's sinking in for our listeners. Yeah. You got to be reading this all the time. If you do that, the text itself will provide you with the lens through which to read it. There's a great ancient proverb. I don't. It's not a biblical proverb, but it's very good. Charles Ryrie used to say this to me all the time. He would say, "Repetition is the mother of all learning." Yeah. Right. So think about that in swimming. Mm-hmm. Right. Rep. How many hundreds are we going to do? A bunch. <laughs> We're going to repeat this a lot. It's even called that, right? How many repeats did you do? Repetition, mm-hmm. right? That, that's how you learn. So maybe this one last little thing, then I'll pick it up. We're not going to finish chapter one today, but we can, when I do, we can zip through this last part. But I did want to point this out. People need to know this. This is not... It's a little bit off our subject, but he does mention it, and so it's important. There's an ancient text called the Letter of Aristeus, and I want people to know what that's about. So that's there's a section in here that begins, you know, halfway through the paragraph that says it's explaining uh, the. Well, I'll just read it from the earliest attested extra-biblical materials that reflect on the Bible, the biblical books are viewed as part of a whole, a book. Although the word Bible comes from the Greek tabiblia and literally means the books, it's clear that these books are part of a unity, a book. The first time this expression, the books, is used to refer to the Old Testament is in the letter of Aristeus. That's a great trivia question. There you go. The first use of the term the books was in the letter of Aristeus, 250 to 150 BC, the purpose of which was to explain and justify the translation of these divinely inspired books and no others into the Greek language for use in the library of Alexandria. So um, in broad history, Alexander's conquered the world. Right. Right, about 323 BC. Well, he brought with him culture and language. And so the main language on the street of the known world at that time became Greek. So, hey, we got this fantastic library at Alexandria we need a copy of the Jewish stuff in there. Well, let's get it in Greek so people can read it. So that's when the Septuagint came about. That's when the Septuagint came about. And and the phrase Septuagint is a reference to 70 because the legend about producing the Greek translation of the Old Testament was that 70 great elders of Israel got together and Compose the translation. Okay. So we call it the Septuagint. So the 70 that translated the, the Bible from Hebrew to Greek. And that became such a powerful translation, Hampton, that when Paul, for instance, wants to quote what we call the Old Testament, quite often he's quoting from the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew. Right. More than half the time. Not, not a huge more than half but literally more than half. Right. 
So that fourth step in our process, translation, Mm -hmm. is that a place where things can fall through the cracks? Maybe, but they don't have to. Right. God's quoting a translation himself often in the New Testament. Right. So anyway, I just wanted to explain what the letter of Aristeus was about. So that's where I'm ready to wrap it up for today. How are we doing? We're good. Okay. Thanks for letting me choose this book, Hampton. We're going to become great readers. Okay. That's my goal. Sounds good. Well, I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.